unexplained deaths and mysteries with Deborah Davis. Welcome back. We are here this week with a very interesting case yet again for you and this one is The Staircase, which you might already be familiar with as it's featured on a Sky Drama and also a Netflix series. So let's take it away. I'm going to introduce Ian, who you're probably all familiar with too by now, and he is going to frame the case and then we're going to discuss what we think really happened. So Ian, welcome. Hi Debbie, good to see you again. Um, yeah, I've got my energy drink next to me, uh, having done uh, two episodes of Jack the Ripper and getting some great feedback on that and on the back of the voice from the car, I thought we could come up for air. But uh, no, you've chosen uh, perhaps one of the most uh, daunting cases in terms of its longevity and the fact that it's, uh, as you said, on Sky and Netflix uh, at the moment. Um, yeah, the staircase death. What I'd like to do is, is frame the process and like before, um, I want you to come in, uh, Debbie, as we go through it. But um, I haven't watched the Netflix docudrama. And my research has been conducted wholly via open source material. Um, I think you'll agree there's an incredible amount of information available about this case, although without direct contact with the key players involved in this investigation, I can only offer my professional view and what I believe on balance are reliable records that connect with the background, the police action, court proceedings and the really fascinating post-conviction procedures. But I must warn you, Debbie, I am by no means an expert witness on this one. Nonetheless, I've applied a criminologist's approach to the data processing and presentation of the reported information. So let's give a bit of background uh, first. Um, Kathleen Peterson, aged 48, a telecoms executive, died at the bottom of a staircase in the home she shared with author husband Michael Patterson on December the 9th, 2001, in Durham, North Carolina, America. He wrote various books, including several, about his experiences in the Vietnam War. The post-mortem concluded that she had sustained a collection of severe injuries, including a fracture of the superior cornu, of the left thyroid cartilage and seven lacerations to the top and back of her head, consistent with blows from a blunt object, and had died from blood loss 90 minutes to two hours after sustaining the injuries. Toxicology results showed that Kathleen's blood alcohol content at the time of death was 70 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood. And just as a comparison there, Debbie, the UK drink drive limit is 80 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood so she was slightly below that threshold yeah she wasn't drunk no she wasn't um, and she could have uh, you know driven a car on uk roads and uh, wouldn't have been uh, over the prescribed limit uh, police also asserted that he carried out the murder after kathleen had uncovered details of affairs he'd been having with male escorts and threatened to leave him Police also claimed Michael had an additional motive to cash in on her $1.4 million life insurance policy. He was eventually charged with first-degree murder. I think also, you know, you said she had obviously some alcohol in the system, but not a lot. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure I read or heard somewhere that she also had Valium in the system, and I'm not sure if there was any other type of medication too. 
Yeah, there is some suggestions out there. Um, it's sort of a, a split between was it just alcohol or was it uh, recreational drugs as well? But uh, yeah, there, there is certainly uh, suspicion that it was perhaps recreational drugs involved in that. Uh, is Valium a recreational drug? Well. Um, <laughs> I think it's prescribed, isn't it? <laughs> oh, blimey. You're asking me who I think. Uh, my knowledge of recreational drugs is, is pretty limited, yeah, but uh, no, Valium is a, is a, well, you it's tell me um, what is a I think it's a prescription, a prescription drug. drug, I think isn't it's, it? yeah. um, you know, to help, I don't, I'm not sure, because I'm not a doctor, but I think it's to help, you know, calm somebody down, et cetera, et cetera, That's, I think, I don't know, but, but I think yeah. that, you know, you yeah. can probably say then, if she did have that in her system, that she you know, she wasn't as she would have been had she got no alcohol, no Valium, nothing, you know, in a system. Obviously, you're affected, aren't you? You know, by different things. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, th I think that's a really good point. I think in terms of when we talk about the drink drive limit, that, you, you, you know, you would be able to drive on UK roads with that level of alcohol in your body. That's not suggesting that it doesn't have some sort of effect mm -hmm. on your, um, your mobility, exactly. your thinking, your attitude towards mm -hmm. risk yeah absolutely mm -hmm. so th th they would have been uh, dulled to some extent and some of them heightened uh, particularly with valium involved as well with the alcohol in 2003 he pleaded not guilty and passionately denied any involvement in her death although a forensic expert for the defense testified that the blood spatter evidence was consistent with an accidental fall down the stairs, the prosecution held that the injuries were not the result of a mishap and that she had died from lacerations of the scalp caused by a homicidal assault involving a light but rigid weapon. The defence countered this theory since their analysis revealed that Kathleen's skull had not been fractured by the blows nor was her brain damaged which was inconsistent with injuries sustained in a beating death. Patterson also claimed that Kathleen was accepting of his bisexuality and their marriage was a happy one. Really interesting though in terms of other compelling evidence unearthed by the prosecution was the death of Elizabeth Ratcliffe, a family friend of Patterson and his first wife Patricia who died in uncannily similar circumstances to Kathleen 16 years earlier. Patterson would go over to her home most nights to help out with her children and he was the last known person to see her alive. She was also found at the bottom of her staircase in a pool of blood, having suffered severe head injuries. German authorities concluded that Ratcliffe had died of cerebral hemorrhage, which led her to falling down the stairs. He later adopted the two children. Her body was buried in Texas and was latterly exhumed in April 2003 for a second autopsy. The medical examiner concluded that the cause of death was homicide, although no charges followed. After the epic four-month trial, Patterson was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. But as you will know, Debbie, and from uh, listeners who have uh, also seen uh, elements of this case uh, online and, and on the TV, there was a really interesting retrial and in 2001 a judge ordered a new trial after finding that Dwayne Deaver the blood spatter analysis from the State Bureau of Investigation provided unreliable testimony 
Diva was dismissed earlier the same year after an independent audit found significant question marks in 34 of the cases he'd been involved in. However, prosecutors refused to drop the charges against Michael Patterson. And this is where it gets really interesting from a legal point of view. Uh, there is a unique US legal procedure that Patterson took advantage of, and he entered what is called an Alford plea to the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter. And we'll uh, look at what the Alford circumstances are in a moment. But uh, I'd like to just focus on voluntary manslaughter for the moment, and that's defined in US statute. Uh, it's sometimes called a crime of passion uh, murder. Um, any intentional killing that involves no prior intent to kill, which was committed under such circumstances, would cause a reasonable person to become emotionally or mentally disturbed. And the Alford submission is a guilty plea where a defendant in a criminal case does not admit to the criminal act and asserts innocence, but admits the evidence presented by the prosecution would be likely to persuade a judge or jury to find the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's just in, in the US. He was then released on February yeah, he was then released on February the twenty fourth, my birthday, twenty seventeen, having served time for the new conviction. So released as a as, as a free man, but having the conviction of voluntary manslaughter. There's been various speculations about it, Debbie, but I think at this juncture I'd like to pass back to you and uh, I'd be very keen on your uh, analysis of this. Unexplained deaths and mysteries with Deborah Davis. It was no admission of guilt on his part without admission of guilt, which he wanted to make very, very clear. Um, it must be said that Michael's first wife um, on camera said that she did not believe for one moment that he murdered Elizabeth. And she said he would not be capable of doing something like that. And that she only ever knew him to be kind and um, caring, etc. And when that lady died at the bottom of those stairs, I've got to say, I saw the stairs, good God, ugh, they were an accident waiting to happen. Uh, if you actually, if you actually, you know, maybe Google it and look at the stairs that that poor lady fell down, I'm really not surprised that that happened. Um, and also the two, the two daughters, uh, it was always the case that should anything have happened to her, because her husband died two years earlier, should anything have then happened to her, that the two girls were to go to Michael and his first wife. So that's what happened. And then later on, their marriage, their marriage broke down. And obviously, eventually, he met Kathleen. But it wasn't the case that, um, that this man, Michael, was some kind of, you know, I don't know, I don't really know quite how to describe uh, what I'm thinking. I don't think it was the case that he was a bad husband. Um, 
his first wife there, I forget her name, but she said there's no way, no way at all whatsoever that he was having an affair with Elizabeth. Absolutely, she does not believe that that was at all possible. And I think because they were so friendly, so close, um, as a woman, I don't, I can't speak for a man, but I can, you know, on behalf of a lot of women, um, when I say, you know, you see the signs when there's an affair going on. There are signs. There are always signs. Okay, sometimes, you know, some people choose to not, you know, acknowledge those signs and put it to the back of their head. But this lady, his first wife, is absolutely adamant there was no affair taking place whatsoever, that there was no motive for him to kill her at all. And indeed, she says that he just was definitely not capable of it. Um, at the time when that lady died, one of the doctors that attended her, Elizabeth, um, took a sample of fluid, cerebral fluid, and conduced from that that this was a hemorrhage of some form. So, so that that was actually kind of diagnosed quite quickly after her death and everybody was happy with that and you know nobody nobody thought there was anything suspicious whatsoever about her death at all it's only years later when we have this situation with Kathleen obviously that people started to raise eyebrows about what happened in the past and Obviously, she was exhumed. I must just say that um, Michael exhibited a great deal of empathy for Elizabeth having to be exhumed after 17 years. He felt that that was horrific for her also, out of respect for her um, and also for her daughter, who he, um, her daughters, sorry, who he is very, very, very close to. Both of the, the daughters of Elizabeth have supported Michael 100% always, all through the trial and, you know, and everything ever since. And they have never, ever felt that they're well, they call him dad, you know, that, that he was capable of murdering their mum or Kathleen. And that's really interesting to note. He took on two children there that weren't his own. He also had two sons as well to support. Then when, when he married Kathleen, obviously, he also took on her daughter as well. And all of them had a great deal of respect for Michael. Obviously, when Kathleen died and murder was suggested, then Kathleen's daughter, it's been well documented, um, hasn't supported Michael whatsoever because she's obviously very concerned that he may have murdered her mum. Uh, but certainly, the two girls regarding Elizabeth have never believed that he murdered their mum. So that's really interesting to note. Also, I would say, when you look at the crime scene for Kathleen and the amount of blood that was there, that was present at that scene, if he had murdered her, 
you would have expected him to have had a lot of blood on his top, for instance, which he didn't have. There wasn't at all. We know about the blood on the inside of the shorts at the top, but then we also know that the man that gave evidence about that was actually lying through his teeth, so that can be discounted. That scene with Kathleen, if that if that scene is as a result of murder, that's somebody that has flown into an absolute rage. Michael was followed around for years by a Netflix crew. At no point whatsoever did he show even a glimmer of anger about anything, anything at all. When he was facing the trial and the verdict and he was found to be guilty, his first thought was to turn around to his girls and his sons and say, it's okay, it's going to be okay, everything is going to be okay, to reassure them. They were his first thought. And then when you see him having the visits from them when he's in prison, his concern is for them at every single point. So <clears throat> from my mind, I think to myself, somebody who is supposed to have brutally slain two innocent women, I don't see the person that's capable of doing that as being so caring and considerate um, towards anybody else the way that he has been at all. His, his first wife saying he's not capable of murder. He's nothing but kind and thoughtful for everybody else. That's actually really quite key. I don't know of one other killer who's brutally slain women. I don't know of any killer whose family or, or maybe partner would say He's the kindest, most lovely gentleman, blah, blah, blah. I really, I don't know. It doesn't fit at all. And I didn't see anything in his body language either that made me think that he was lying about being okay. innocent. Okay, I, I, I wonder, Debbie, at this moment, I, I've, I've taken some notes, as you would expect an ex-cop to do. Um, can we just summarise? Am I right in thinking that uh, your analysis of the Elizabeth Ratcliffe death um, was an accident? It was an accident um, and everybody recognised at the time that it was an accident. It was only when it was very well documented that Kathleen had died at the bottom of the stairs and he seems to be the common denominator that suddenly the post-mortem was ruled as being, you know, suspicious and it was a homicidal death. I mean, wow, <laughs> it took 17 years for that. Okay. And the f children and his previous wife um, had a fantastic positive narrative about Michael as as as, as a husband and as a as a friend. Um, and you've said that, yeah, and a father. And and, and to your knowledge, you know, um, that type of behaviour is not consistent with being a a murderer. Unexplained deaths and mysteries.
with Deborah Davis. Well, that scene, Kathleen, Kathleen's scene of her death, if you, if that was caused because of murder, that wasn't somebody just bopping somebody over the head with a bit of a stick because you were a bit fed up with them. That was a scene of complete another, 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 God, I can't speak today. Uh, it was a scene of complete, total rage. And I must just say as well, I must just point something out. Because during the trial, they discussed whether or not Michael and Kathleen's uh, marriage was a happy marriage, a good marriage. And I, I, they, they ripped apart the marriage because they said that he is bisexual or whatever. They went on about his sexuality. I must just say, this, this is something that really gets my goat. Anybody's sexuality has got absolutely nothing to do with anybody else, anything else other than themselves. And it doesn't matter if he's gay, if he's bi, if he's trans, if he's this, if he's that or the other, that has absolutely no bearing on anything whatsoever at all. And yes, he was, he was definitely, I think from what we've seen and his own admissions, he was, he was contacting other people, other men, etc. for extramarital sex, blah, 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 etc., must just point out though as well, one person in particular who was called as a witness at the trial was one of the escorts that he contacted. And he said that in his initial um, chats there with Michael, Michael actually said, I am actually very happily married and I do love my wife. It's quite clear that he did absolutely love his wife. Why would he say that, you know, to an escort? And that escort actually said at the trial that that was very unusual and most didn't normally talk about their wives, but Michael did, and he probably felt very guilty. I am in no place to judge, um, nobody is, as to Michael's sexual urges or whatever else, but that does not make him a murderer. And it also doesn't mean he had an unhappy marriage. You know, there are people in this world who have 10 wives. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> does that mean that nobody's happy? <laughs> I mean, you know, they've all consented to be married to one man and, you know, he's not just got one woman and yet, oh, you know, well, that must mean you're not happy because there's more than one person in your life. You have people who are very happy in their marriage and they're going out and they're swinging. I mean, that's not my cup of tea, but, you know, they would say they're happily married. So you cannot judge the state of somebody's marriage simply by the fact that one of them, yes, is conducting extramarital affairs, you know, with a member of the same sex as them. So what? That doesn't have any bearing on, on the happiness and the state of the marriage. So that was completely wrong and, and out of order, in my opinion, because then that also judged his character too. And it's wrong to do so. There are billions and millions of people having extramarital affairs. They're not slaughtering people simply because they've been found out or, you know, it's, it's just ridiculous. 
It's absolutely, we'd, we'd have bodies lying all over the place in houses, all over the bloody world if it was, you know, the case of, oh, well, she found out that he had been looking at other men online. You know, really? Wow. So, hang on, half the world should be bloody dead then. <laughs> I think what you've identified is within the criminal justice system of the US and the UK, uh, juries will draw inferences from the information that's given to them and it's the opportunity for the judge to, to sort of roll back roll back those those issues back but <laughs> i just want to pick up on from a criminal justice or criminology uh, point of view um and a human point of view we we think we're great at finding out if people are lying and i've had it before when i've been speaking to someone they said you're lying because you're looking to the left looking to the right and all this sort of pseudoscience we are absolutely rubbish at identifying whether somebody is, is telling us the truth and we have a or, 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 or telling a lie i have sussed out many many things in my time well let, let me just <laughs> let, let me just counter that with, ju- with just a few of the facts well it's interesting you say women know i think uh, i was uh, speaking about <laughs> affairs once and um i said how do you know if a guy's having an affair and the lady said uh, it's normally on a neon light on their on their forehead so yeah th- th- there are signs however liars can convince others and themselves that they're telling the truth and big lies are the easiest to get away with and you know this is a big event you know somebody dying and one example uh, Bernie Madoff I mean what a name Madoff uh, the former chair of New York's Nasdaq stock exchange swindled nearly 5,000 people out of estimated 50 billion dollars in a Ponzi scheme and when convicted he admitted that it was just one big lie so, so, so the big lies are, are, are very easy to, to get away with, particularly if you keep repeating and repeating the same line. Well, I'm really conscious of time with this, Ian. Blimey, we've been talking away about this and there's so much more that we've got to say. I think we should wrap it up for now and you know what? Let's just get our head around everything, come back in a few days and chat some more. Well, that's all for now, guys. Wow. Please let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook, Ian Kirk, Deborah Davis, Psychic Medium, Instagram, Twitter, etc. for Ian. <laughs> let us know your thoughts. You can leave a review here on the podcast too. And yeah, we'd really like to know what you think about this case. And do you think he was guilty, innocent? You know, what's your thoughts?